are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. You know, um, Grace and I are expecting our second child. What? And we're incredibly excited, especially if it's a boy. I'm just kidding. But really, that would be clutch. Okay. But I remember at the beginning of our marriage, we both prayed and talked a lot about adopting, adoption. We like a big family, and the thought of adoption struck us emotionally and spiritually because adoption at its core is really the gospel message. We're able to actually journey with a good couple of friends that we had up in Philly who adopted a baby boy recently. And so to see a child who was once completely alone and capable of surviving on their own, a child who was in many ways just discarded, rejected, abandoned, but found his way into the loving embrace of not just a couple who needed him because they were unable to physically have children, but, they, but he found his way into the arms of a couple who desperately wanted him and loved him. It was just so amazing to witness and just to be a part of. And so I just want to say, whether you are physically capable of having children or not, I want all of you, including the ones who aren't even thinking about kids, let alone marriage, to understand the intrinsic gospel nature of adopting, and that you would all, all of you, would consider one day and pray about adopting as you think about building your family. Amen? Amen. Okay. So what's the essence of adopting? Uh, of adoption. First, there is a change in a child's legal status. No longer orphan, no longer alone, but now they are a part of a family. Their name changes too. You actually stand before someone of authority, a judge, an agency, and the child is given a new name, a new identity, but that's not all. It's not just about standing before a judge or an agency, but it's also adoption is about living a new relationship between parents and child. Parent that was once childless, a child that was once parentless, now they have a relationship. The Christian faith is a lot like that too. You can define Christianity in many different ways if you want. But I have two points that come from our text here that will help us understand how we are adopted by God. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, it says he predestined us for adoption as sons through, this, through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of of his will. Now, the first concept I want to teach you guys today is the concept of justification. Turn to your neighbor and say, justification. justification. This is the standing before the judge in kind of legal reality by which we become Christians. But the second point is also the reality of our union with Christ. And this part has to do with kind of our participation, the transformation that occurs in our lives, which is a component of the salvation. In other words, this is the part where we get to live out our faith, live out our salvation. Now, our first point was justification. And I want to spread that point out a little bit more. And I want to say this, that the law has no power, that the rules and the works of the world has no power, only Jesus can save us. Amen? Now, if you begin to work anywhere, you have to start learning the, ling the language of your job, right? The new lingo. So for those of you who work for the government, you know all these kind of government terms, right? And, you can, and with your coworkers, you can spew it out and stuff like that. But you talk to any other person who doesn't work in the government, they'll have no understanding what you're talking about. 
In the same way, if you work in the food industry or the retail industry, you have to learn a new terminology. Well, in the health industry, it is no different, too. I remember I went, I've been to dinner a few times with my wife and her, um, and her uh, physician colleagues. Now, if you want to see someone who doesn't get it, take a good hard look at me during that dinner. They're throwing out weird words like medulla oblongata, intubating the frontal lobe of the anterior colonoscopy with 500 cc's or whatever. Like, first of all, when is that kind of language ever appropriate for dinner? <laughs> Secondly, what are you talking about? What are these people talking about? These people, as in my wife. What are you talking about? Right? There are things I just... Perhaps there are even terms that you have a hard time learning because you don't want to learn. Now, before um, I fully came into the, e the English ministry side, I was also the youth pastor. And there were many times when kids would talk, and I just have no understanding. And a part of me wants to look it up, right, on Urban Dictionary, figure it out. But a part of me just really doesn't care. And that's why I think PJ is doing a heck of a lot better of a job than, than me, yeah, he, he's able to really relate with the kids. And he, PJ right there, by the way, he's our youth pastor. Can you say hi? Yeah, I, well, I say that not just to put him in an awkward spot because you know, as our ministry has grown, we also have people who have youth kids too and, and middle school kids, uh, elementary school kids, and I want to introduce you all to uh, the pastors. But yeah, PJ, he knows what's up. He knows the slang terms, right? He could talk to them and say, you know what, that he and his bae are all part of the squad and... and and he's jiggy with it, which I know is not anything people use these days, right? But he understands. Now, here's the thing. For us as Christians, for those of you who want to know more of God, there's a certain level of, there's certain terminology and certain words and terms that you also have to understand. You also have to learn. And you need to know this because it'll bring clarity to you, and you, you need to know what you believe, ultimately, right? You get what I'm saying? Now, I honestly struggled... <coughs> with this text during my week of preparation because if you just kind of go over it at face value, it, start, it, start, it starts to sound really kind of heady and really kind of theological and intellectual. And it was hard for me to grasp and find a sermon here. But obviously, Apostle Paul, he didn't back down from using some of these terms here. And so I believe that the Lord has called me to just say it like it is in the way the Lord has placed it in my heart. I also believe that God has called you all here just to be patient and learn. Amen? Can you do that? All right. From verses 15, 21, there's two key terms that were used. The word justified or justification. The word righteous or righteousness. It depends on your translation. By the way, here at Shining Star Community Church, the English ministry, we use the ESV. <coughs> the ESV. If you have the NIV 1984, that's fine. Um, if you are really trying to nerd out, you can use the NASB, okay, NASB. Uh, if you like not being with it, you can use the King James Version, okay? But I want to encourage you guys to not really go into the NLT, New Living Translation, or the Message. I think they're great for our little kids, they're really understandable in that sense, but um, mainly because it uses a lot of modern-day language and idioms and phrases and terminology that's just, I think, wrong, and they tend to offer a watered-down paraphrase, okay, to many of the verses. So ESV, and then if you don't have a Bible... Um, you can definitely use your phone, but I would encourage an actual Bible. So anyways, back to the sermon after I've insulted every one of you. Okay, remember, we're talking about justification now. This is the legal aspect of the gospel. 
Justify is a verb from the word righteousness. Okay? It is from the word righteousness. And righteous means to be upright. It means to be just. So to justify someone means the opposite of condemning them. Okay? To justify means to acquit, to vindicate, to treat as just, to be put right with or to declare right. I declare that you are good. I declare that you're innocent. I declare that you're fine. So justification means being acquitted. It means being declared righteous. I like what J.I. Packer says. He says that justification is like to declare a man who is on trial that he is not liable to any penalty and he is not entitled to any of the, that he is entitled, sorry, to all the rights and all the privileges due as if he did not commit the crime. Does that make sense? As if he did not commit the crime. As if he kept the law. As if he broke nothing. Justifying is the act of a judge pronouncing the opposite sentence to condemnation. Praise be to God. In Christ Jesus, you are justified. In Christ Jesus, you have been declared right. And so naturally, justify brings us to that next word, righteousness or righteous. Now this word has two aspects, two sides, two senses. The first is that it's an act of behavior that, that must be lived up to a certain standard. Okay, it's a certain standard. The second is, is the rightness in a sense of a right standing in terms of relationship. A right standing in terms of relationship. Now you can sum it up this way. Righteousness is right standing which results in right living. Okay? Right standing which results, automatically results in right living or even right behavior if you want to call it that. Tim Keller said this. He said, everyone here is struggling for righteousness. Everyone is struggling to be right in some way, okay? To be set right, to be declared right, to be just in some way. And he says that because he's referring to the Bible. And he's referring to how the Bible has typically defined righteousness in terms of our relationship with God, that is. Now take, for instance, Adam and Eve. When they sinned against God, at that moment, they decided they were going to be their own masters. And so when they sinned, they immediately sensed that they were no longer right with God. The moment they sinned, they go, we did something bad. Something's wrong. Something has shifted. They are no longer right with God. They are no longer right with his creation, the universe. Their original righteousness, their original worth, their original beauty, their original acceptability was completely lost instead They found themselves to be unacceptable in some deep, physical, emotional, spiritual, profound level. You see, their right standing, their righteousness was lost. Now we know from the Bible that everybody born to this world, they know they are not right, not acceptable, not valuable, not lovable. So what do we do? Everyone seeks to find ways to make themselves right. They seek They pursue, they do whatever they can to find something, someone perhaps, to accept them. There's a relentless pursuit of something, I think you know what that is in your life. I don't even have to tell you what it is. You know, deep down inside. If I get that job, then people won't think of me as some fill-in-the-blank, broke guy, loser, whatever. 
If I get that guy or that girl, then I will feel loved and appreciated. And in my culture, perhaps, finally my parents and my grandparents will stop nagging. By the way, that guy or girl that you're relentlessly pursuing or that you're interested is also desperately seeking after validation and worth. So don't expect any complete, full validation from them. It will be short-lived, if anything. That's your romantic quote for today. Look, we all try to get righteousness from something. Maybe it's sex, maybe it's partying, maybe you desperately want respect, authority, maybe it's a pursuit of material possessions, maybe it's your employment. Either way, all these things end up just becoming symbols of your desire to be recognized, accepted, and approved. What are you pursuing after? What is it in your life you're thinking, if I just get that, if I just get her, if I just get him, if I could just accomplish that or successfully complete this, then I will be fine. I'll have what I want. I'll be at peace. I can finally smile. Perhaps this day being Valentine's Day is causing an emotional stir in you. And so you have this longing for a relationship or this longing for marriage or love that has to say, God, Lord, you can only use me when I get what I want. How many of you guys have ever thought that? Especially as a Christian brother or Christian sister, you're thinking, man, I feel like my life is at a standstill. It's when I get married, I can really start living for God. It's when I, when I get plugged in with another brother or sister and, and, and get into an intimate relationship with them is when I can do something really for God. I like what Matt Chandler said. He said to this effect, he said, if you're single right now, how many singles are here? Raise them high and proud. There you go. So all the singles, look look who's single. I'm just saying. Okay? Matt Chandler said this. He said, if you're single right now, leverage your singleness and go all out for God. Go all out for God by discipling people and doing things that you would know, that you know otherwise would be difficult if you were married. Okay? So your singleness right now, I want to tell you all, is not a phase, it's not a problem, it's a God-given opportunity. Right now. Singles, can't hear an amen. Make the most of it. Marriage will not satisfy you. Do you know how I know? I'm married. And, tell, and ask any married person. They'll say, oh no, it's great. It's, 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 it will not satisfy you. A romantic dinner with a significant other will not give you all the self-worth and all those those validations and self-esteem, whatever you want to call it, it's just not going to do it. You cannot find righteousness anywhere apart from the one who made you, loved you, and saved you. So how can we be justified? In this text, we have a collision of two different gospels coming right now. The false and the truth. The false gospel and the true gospel. And first, Apostle Paul was arguing with the false gospel promoters for, by these Judaizers. And these Judaizers were saying, when they're from Jerusalem, their teachers are saying, oh, no, we're, we're, our, 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 our teaching is completely valid. And Paul, you're wrong. Because these guys are saying, yeah, yeah, you got to believe in Jesus. You got to place your faith in Jesus and in the Old Testament laws. Right? That's what they're saying. 
and in the Old Testament law. That means that you need to obey all the law, meaning all the Ten Commandments. You've got to obey all the ceremonial laws, the respect of holy days, sacrifices, clean and unclean distinctions. You need to obey all the civil laws, and like the rules for how to live in the Jewish community. You need to also abide by the, any type of violations against you know, um, not following these laws, so on and so forth. And the reasoning behind this is that if you work hard enough and try and please God, if you, if you toil enough, try to live up to his standards, and then he will accept you based on your toil, based on your effort, based on your good enoughs. But we know that's not true. Now, how do we know that? Because of who God is. I'll give you an example. Not too long ago, I was in Tyson's Corner, and um, I was there really just to pick something up, but um, I'm always, my eyes are always peeled for evangelistic moments, opportunities, God moments, right, as I like to call them. So <clears throat> there I saw an elderly man, and he was doing my favorite pastime, which is just sitting. So I went up to him, and I sat down, and he told me he used to be in the Navy. And I said, oh, so is my wife. And because that was the extent of our conversation about that. But then I said, do you go to church? And he looked at me and he goes, I used to, but not anymore. Well, the conversation inevitably led to a gospel presentation. But at the end of that, when I said, are you willing to place your faith in Christ Jesus? He responded this way. He said, he said you know what? God would, by the way, he's a really nice guy. <clears throat> he said, God would judge me based on my good over my bad. In other words, he's saying, he will know, he will see how my good outweighs my bad. And he will see that I am good enough. I'm well enough, is what he actually said. And so I said, okay. And I asked him, can you describe God? He said, sure. God is God, and he used Christian jargon. He said he's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he is faithful, he is good, and so on. And, and finally, he finally came to that one word. He said, he's perfect. I said, okay, he's perfect. What do you mean by perfect? Well, he is always good. And I go, that's a really good one. Um, and I was being sarcastic. I said, what do you mean by that? He says, well, he's holy. I go, ah. So if he's holy, what does that mean, sir? He says, uh, well, he's always right. I go, okay, that means what? That he is always, is he for sin or against sin? He goes, he's obviously against sin. I go, like 90% of him? He goes, no, 100. 100% of who God is is completely opposed to all of sin. He is so hateful, wrathful to sin, against sin, that is, you cannot even use in the same sentence, same breath. God is Opposed to sin. Do you believe that, sir? And he goes, yes. I go, that is why God is perfect, amen? And he goes, amen, yes, I would agree. And I said, then why should he ever accept you? Or me. I always say me because I don't want him to feel too bad, <laughs> right? Because I'm also in that same boat, right? Then why would he accept you? Why would he accept me? It's either this, we either come to him perfectly or we don't come to him at all because of our imperfections. But we must come to him on his terms, not ours. We can't declare ourselves good enough because we know that we're not, not by his standard, 
Because it's God's home that we're trying to get to. Hear me, let me give you an example. I got a house. Well, my wife and I, we have a house. And we have house rules. First of all, take off your shoes. We're Asian. But second is this. Don't steal stuff. Right? Obviously. Third is similar to number two, which is don't be shady and we'll all have a good time. But why am I able to make these rules? Because it's my house, our house. Why should God be any different? It's his presence that we're wanting to get to. Amen? It's to him. Then shouldn't it be his standard by which we must be accepted? And that's what justification is. We don't go around telling God, you need to accept us based on this standard. No, it's the other way around. God says, you want to come to my house, here are my rules. This is my standard. In fact, it's said three times in verse 16. First, man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Two, so, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Three, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. There's nothing that you can do or try to follow or make up for yourselves that, you, that will make you even more or any less acceptable by God. And so Paul, he sets them straight with the true gospel that Jesus has both kept God's law perfectly and he laid down his life as an atonement for our failure to keep God's law. Remember, just because your sins were forgiven doesn't mean that they were just erased and, and swept under that cosmic rug of God's. Uh-uh. Because someone had to pay the time for your crime. So Jesus, he took our punishment and he died for you and for me. This is what our faith is then, okay? It is abandoning our trust and hope in our own record, in our own accomplishments, in our own feelings of whatever you want to call it, and instead you are embracing the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus as the basis for our standing right before a perfect and holy God. You are justified by believing and trusting and resting in Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing. There was some objection, as you can probably imagine. People were saying, well, Jesus, you're opening a whole new door now because if people can be justified by simply believing in Jesus without keeping the law, then there's absolutely no reason, no motivation, no incentive to live a godly and pursue a holy and righteous life because people will just say, I believe in Jesus, and they will live like they please. That's the essence of verse 17. So they're saying, so then are you accusing Jesus of being an agent of sin? Paul, he does give a brief answer, but I want to go into verses 19, 21, because there you will get a fuller explanation of why the gospel of grace would not lead to what these men were accusing Paul of. And so that leads to my second point. In Christ, we have died to sin and have been reborn unto a new life. Turn to your neighbor and say, in Christ, we have a new life. So our first point was the legal aspect of our faith, and to be justified is to be legally declared right before God. Now we enter the transformative and the participatory aspect of our gospel-centered faith. If you are saved, if you are justified, you are in union with Christ. Union with Christ. Think about that for a second. Right now, for those of you who profess faith in Jesus Christ, you are in union with Christ. Him, when you are married to your spouse, you are in union with them. Not just when you're at home, not just when you're thinking about them, but 24-7, 365 
for the rest of your physical life here on earth until death do you apart. The New Testament tells us that when we become Christians, the Holy Spirit joins us to Christ. We become a member of the body, a part of the holy temple. In fact, prophet Ezekiel says that we receive a new heart and new spirit in chapter 36. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says we become a new creation, one filled with the spirit of Jesus. So it's described as he is in us, as in his spirit is in us, and we are described as we are in him. But more than that, we are united to him in his death because he died as our substitute. Recently, I saw on Facebook, and perhaps a lot of you guys have seen too, of a mom whose infant died. And she donated her son's organ, uh, her heart, the, the heart of her son, to another infant who was on a transplant list, needed a heart. Fast forward a few years, and the mom, the, the moms, they both meet. And the mom who donated her baby's heart was for the first time able to hear her son's heartbeat through the body of the girl he saved. Even in death, there is union. We are united by Christ, to Christ, by his death. The reason our hearts beat anew is because he has given us a new heart. And he has taken from us our old one. He has conquered our death with his death and in turn, he has given us life. Greater still is not just the fact that we're united to him in his death, but also in his resurrection. That's why when we baptize, we believe in the practice of our church here, in the practice of full immersion rather than any other method. Because full immersion displays the beautiful, complete union we have with Christ. That's why for those of you who I baptized in the past, and more recently this past summer, I always say, when I'm about to dip you, I say, buried with him in the likeness of his death, raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection to walk in the newness of life. So based upon your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You see, this is not some abstract theoretical truth. This is the reality of the gospel message. Because on one hand, we were all just a bunch of zombies, walking, talking, but spiritually dead men and women. We were all dead to sin. Sin had power over us. We were dead to the law and the fact that it's unattainable <coughs> standards only highlight the fact that we were unable to live perfectly, and therefore we were condemned. We were dead to the things of this world that sought to destroy us and control us. We were even dead to your own flesh. How many times have you ever thought, man, I, ugh, I hate my body? I hate my laziness. I hate the bad habits that, I've, that I have. I hate my whatever you want to call it. This is the flesh that we struggle with. All those things, all those components are things that cause us to live sinful, self-seeking, prideful, man-centered, rebellious lives. But all that stuff, we're suddenly, all of a sudden, disabled, turned down, torn down by our union with Christ. In Christ, you have a new life. We are people who died and now have come back to life. You see, the gospel is not only the message of the saving grace through Christ. The gospel is also our assurance of living new lives as new creations. Did you know that? Did you know that as Christians now, you no longer have to live the same way that you lived before? You know, as Christians now, the sins that have 
that were, that were running rampant in your lives, the addictions, the habits that you had, that Christ has broken you free from it. All you have to do is trust and place your faith in him. Walk with him. The old temptations have lost their appeal. The fear of old rules and regulations would be gone. The concern about would I be accepted or receiving approval from family and friends and from society and culture, all that would be gone. All these things, all the hoops that you have jumped through to get that hug, all these standards that you've allowed the world to place upon you, it no longer applies to you. Not one bit. People think Christianity is some sort of heavy, regulated, religious institution about control. No, the gospel is about freedom. It's those who are not in Christ who are captives to their own sins and struggles. They have no choice. They will always follow flesh. They will always follow the world. They will always follow sin. But those who are in Christ are free to live the free and purpose lives we were made for, live as children of God. So how is Christianity like adoption? Because through one legal act, a new reality was created, not just for family's sake, but a covenant relationship with God was established between us and the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. We were and are forever in right standing before God. Another way it's like adoption is that in this new relationship with God, is one that leads to transformation. Turn to your neighbor and say this, are you being transformed? It's not an overnight occurrence, guys. Do not be discouraged. But it means that you are devoting and willing to invest the rest of your God-given life here to learn about what it means when you have died with him. To live the rest of your life dead to sin and to the law, but now living out what it means to live out the resurrection life. This is a life that where every day, whether you're in school or work, whether with family or by yourself, is, has a very specific aim, specific purpose. No, your life's goal and purpose is not just to make money and have a fat income and buy that car and that house and to have those kids, no, it's not that. No, your goal and objective in life is not to make a name for yourself. No, your goal and objective in life is not to find a cure for this. No, your goal in life is not to do this or to accomplish that for the sake of your own glory and pride. But your purpose in life is to know God more intimately. It's to know God more and to have Him known. To know God more passionately. And to live with his desires, not your desires, not your parents' desires, not your parents' expectations, not your culture's expectations, but God's expectations, his desires for his kingdom. Let that play out on your life. For his glory, power, and honor. So that's why, if anything, even though you have significant others here, perhaps, I say, and I love my wife to death, but happy Valentine's Day to God. The real MVP the real lover of our souls. He would never stand us up. He will never fail us. He will never reject us. He will complete us. He will lead us. And he is all that you need right now and forever. 
And how did he prove his amazing love for you? By giving himself to us. Remember, we were in sin, and the law had no power to save us. Nothing in this world had any power to save you. You can't even save yourselves. Only Jesus can make you righteous. We must also know that in Christ, we have died and have now risen with him to eternal life so that we may now live lives transformed and forever new. You are new creation. Never be the same again. So today, when we go downstairs for fellowship, we're going to have a little Valentine's Day fellowship to commemorate the greatest and most divinely romantic relationship you could ever have. I want to encourage you all to never stop having dates with God. Never stop meeting with Him. Even when you're tired, and I know you're tired, even when you're stressed out, even when you're burdened with work, when you're burdened with errands, when you're burdened with all sorts of things, maybe even illness, never forget what He's done for you and who He is to you. Let me say this, and this is the last practical application thought, whatever you want to call it. It starts by giving Him your time. Okay, let's be realistic here. God is not going to somehow one day remove all your obligations and say, now it's just you and me. Time will not be created. You must make time. So I encourage you all, make time. Don't wait for time, but make time to be with him. Make time to hear his truth. Make time to speak, pray with him every single day. May the Lord bless you all this afternoon. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this afternoon and for the sermon. God, we thank you for your words. I certainly do not know the way people are living their lives, the way that we've directed our attention, our focus. But God, we know that whether they are Christian, whether they are a believer in Christ or not, Lord, you, just, you still desire them. You want them, and perhaps for some of us who profess faith in you, Lord, it's been a while since we've been with you. And so your Holy Spirit is convicting them. You want to reclaim them, bring them back. Lord, how freeing to know, is it to know that there was nothing that we've ever done in our past, nothing that we are doing right now or even in our future that will keep us from your love. But Lord, I do pray that you would now give us a moment, a clear moment, to look into our hearts and to really evaluate where, we are, where we're at with you, God. How do we stand before you? Perhaps for some of you, you do not stand right before God because you do not know Jesus. Today's the day, right now is the moment, that you place your faith in Christ Jesus, who is the only one who can save you, who is the only one who can justify you before the judge, before our Father. For those of you who have been walking with the Lord, I want to encourage you to press on Keep going. Know that the Lord is leading you. And strengthen your fellowship with him. Lord, I thank you that right now as 
the EM here as we just sit before you, as our, as our eyes are closed, and that we can just completely trust and have complete faith in your works, in your righteousness, and in your great love and faithfulness. I pray that today we will just submit ourselves before you and seek after your heart, Lord. Speak to us. Do whatever you have to do, Lord, to get our attention right now. I thank you. Brothers and sisters, I want to give you guys a moment now, just a brief moment before we go into our concluding song, to lift up a prayer to the Lord. If it's not now, trust me, you're not going to do it tomorrow, the day after, next week. And it may be too late. You never know. But in deep humility, come before him. Say, God, I need you. I need you. I have sought after so many things for acceptance and approval, only to be rejected time and time again. It is so difficult, Father. There are so many things I've done to try to make things work for myself, but I've just failed, crashed, and burned. God, there's nothing, absolutely nothing here on earth, Lord, that is doing anything for me. If anything, gives me just a glimpse of joy and happiness, but that too is fleeting. Brothers and sisters, it was the wrong thing that you've been searching for. It's the wrong thing that you've been investing in. His name is Jesus. Give your life, give your all, give everything, your time, everything right now. Okay, let's take this moment and pray.